Right, welcome everybody to Out of Your League. We've got a fantastic guest with us this afternoon, uh, James Simpson, Leeds Rhinos, England uh, and Rugby League World Cup 2021 ambassador. James, um, delighted to, to have you with us. How are you getting on? Yeah, man, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm good. Just sat at home, sweating in the office while uh, everyone else is sat in the garden chilling out. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well, mate. How are you? Yeah, good, good. You'll notice, is there anything noticeably different about um, the podcast? Have you seen the podcast before? Uh, where everyone sat on really nice comfy sofas and uh, uh, well, yeah. that, that, that yeah. difference. Now we're yeah. all online. Well, aside from that, we've got a very noticeable absence, haven't we, Mark? We do indeed. Uh, Will Perry is um, living it up on his mummy and stepdaddy's villa and uh, yacht in Mallorca. So he's, has, he got, uh, he's has he got a yacht? Yeah, he's told me a few times. I think he said mummy's yacht it was his actual terminology. Um, and it's new. Yeah, he's, he's, he's living the life. So good luck to him. Yeah, he think, might never I, come back. Yeah, I think ultimately, James, what we found with Will is we're just too working class for him. It's just a little bit too working class. You know, he, he just doesn't quite fit in. But we hope Will's enjoying Mallorca in his, in his speedos. So, James, you were down at, down at Wembley. Um, look, one of the things that, you know, through being an ambassador and through getting some profile is you get to do cool stuff like that. How was Wembley? Yeah, it was ace. Well, that whole week, to be honest, um, we were in training camp all week down in Kent. Uh, so we were training really hard, like Monday to Friday. And then Wednesday, we zipped off to look at the copper box to see where we're going to be based, uh, which was ace. And then Friday, uh, we were at the Cenotaph for the the, the replaying and then uh, went to Downing Street to like do some photo ops um, with the Prime Minister and all the statues and then had a little tour of Downing Street. And then the next day we were in Wembley doing that. So, yeah, it's been, it was just an amazing week. And, and the, the Cenotaph and Downing Street and then behind the scenes at Wembley is like one of those massive opportunities I get to do for being the ambassador for the wheelchair game that like it's proper pinch yourself moments and 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 those those couple of days all happening at once it was like oh yeah I could do this for I could do this for a long time did you get to chat to Boris uh no not really John John did John Don did a little bit uh he saw Jason Robinson and got really excited (laughs) (laughs) he played the real rugby I know you the normal rugby (laughs) <laughs> and then, yeah, so Jason Robinson got really excited and then they was gone within like a couple of minutes. I think he was on. It's weird because when you get down there, everything's so schedulized for him. Like the people outside, the, the media guys were like, right, he's coming down the stairs now. He'll be at the door. Okay, he's coming out now. You do what you got to do. And then they're like, yep, he's, he's meeting now in 10 seconds. And everything is just so rigid for them that like they, they must just get guided everywhere by someone to to go from appointment to appointment. Yeah, you can imagine it, can't you? Boris, you have 98 seconds with the Northerners. Do yeah. Go chat about rugby. <laughs> yeah, T- Time's up. Time's up. Go and, go and lie to the public on telly. <laughs> he absolutely loved the trophy. He was just going like, that's a, that's a big trophy. I've never seen one this big before. <laughs> yeah, that's the rugby league one. That's what she said. Um, <laughs> right, so what, what, we, what we like to do, actually, what Will likes to do, James, is he wants to get right right back in people's timelines, you know, get back to the childhood. We're, we're pretty certain, me and Mark, that that's because Will's got a very disturbed childhood and he's, and he's, he's obsessed that people have got some real trauma in the childhood. But just, just, just take us back to you, where you grew up uh, and how you developed sort of into the man. Talk us through your childhood. Mark knows where I grew up, don't you? Uh, Gisley, Gwisley? <laughs> yeah. Gwisley. No, it's Geisley. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I grew up, like, sorry to disappoint you, but I don't have any, like, super brutal, like, childhood or anything. I was just a normal lad. Uh, grew up a uh, little town kind of west of, of Leeds called Geisley. Um, played rugby for my school, you know, a bit across country. School for me was just uh, something you had to go through and do, really. I didn't accelerate, but I wasn't rubbish at it. I just treat it as like something I had to do to, to, to be an adult. Uh, yeah, I grew up, uh, everyone's probably sick of me talking about it now, but I, I grew up wanting to be a soldier and that's all I wanted to do as a kid. So uh, when I was at school or when I was doing something, everything I did was uh, based around joining the army when I could, as soon as I could get out of school and leave Leeds and see the world. So yeah, that's what I, that's how I lived my life really. And then when I was 16, I left school, uh, joined the army later that year. And then before I knew it, I was 18 and I was out, being a soldier. 
I'm I'm really interested in this that you were obsessed with being in the army. That that for me is in it, like I find that interesting because you know it couldn't have been further away from my thoughts going through school. I'm pretty sure you'd be the same, Flash, right? Yeah, that was going to be my question. Yeah, at 16, 17, 18, to to want to like put your body and life on on the line for your country must have been something that you you're really passionate about. And I've just I was thinking, why is it the travel? Is it the the, the being part of a team? Is it the combat? Is it the sense of belonging? There must be a, mi- a million different reasons why. What was what was the one for you really? Yeah. So when I did came on board as the World Cup ambassador, they're like did this really fancy like video for me, which they got some fancy production team for London to knock up. And I had to go back and find loads of photos and videos of me as a kid. And I found videos of me like I was seven years old wearing like dog tags and camouflage t-shirts next to tanks that I'd go around tank museums and things like that. And it, it was just one of those things I always wanted to do. And weirdly, when I was like 13, sneaking into cinemas to watch like Saving Private Ryan, and you remember the beginning of that, it's just brutal. It's yeah. when they land on yeah. D-Day on Omaha Brick Beach and just get smashed. But that, that like, made me want to do it even more because I was like that. It just looked so intense and so challenging. And when I when I think about it now as an adult and I, and I break it all back, I think it was just the challenges. And it was the challenges of, like, leaving home at 16. It was the challenges of um, physically pushing yourself to places you didn't think you could go. or, or And I think some of it was... I, I always wanted to join and do combat. I always wanted to be in a combat unit. People try and stay to all stuff. But I was like, no, I want to join and I want to fight. And I think that was is like the ultimate challenge. If you can go to a war zone uh, and get people who genuinely want to kill you and they're going to try and actively kill you, if you can be better than them and you can survive and, and, and that's the proper challenge. If you can go through all that and react and don't lose your head, for me, I think that was the, the ultimate challenge in life is pushing yourself to that point and, and like to the point where if you fail, you might die. Like I, I think when I boiled down to it, it was all just challenges. And and uh, even when I was a kid, I've said it before, but like I used to sign up for the 800 meter race on, on sports day because that was the, the furthest you could run as a kid. So not, nobody wanted to do it because it was the hardest race. Everyone wanted to do the hundred and go home. So I like 10 seconds graph, 10 seconds, not at 12, like 15 seconds graphs. <laughs> and go, Are you okay. saying that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the, the breed and well in Geisley. But uh, yeah, so I did, I did the 800 because it was the hardest and the worst. And I think that when I, when I think back to being a kid, that's that is the point where I was like, I, I want to do it because it's challenging and test myself. And, and I have all the cliches, like I did want to get out of Leeds and travel and see things. Uh, but it wasn't, I'm not one of those guys who was like, yeah, I wanted to see the world because I never... I never did any of the the stuff some people do where they'll like play sport for the army or they'll, or they'll go and live in um, so-and-so for a year as a speedboat driver, but get paid by the army. I was always looking for the next combat deployment or the next tour that would get me ready for combat. So it was, I think it was just the challenge of, of combat really. And the challenge of being in like shitty situations, but knowing you can handle it and knowing you can survive and come out the other end. I find that really interesting because He's saying from a young age, you wanted to put yourself out of your comfort zone. And I think human beings, by their very instincts, just, just want to be comfortable and safe. But for you from a seven, eight, nine-year-old to to actively want that kind of situation to be in and where you, you put in stressful situations, that that's pretty rare, I think. Yeah, it's, it's not rare when you're in the army because you meet a lot of yeah. other like-minded people. And uh, when I joined, I joined an infantry battalion, so 600 blokes who... Are infantry fighters that's your job is you you take and hold ground that's like that's the bottom line is you're the guys who you can have helicopters and you can have tanks but at the end of the day they're just supporting you to get in the trenches and clear them and, and then hold that ground afterwards so but within it within an infantry battalion you have like even smaller groups like reconnaissance platoon anti-tanks and snipers so i as soon as i got in a battalion i was like right where's the, the toughest place sniper platoon so as soon as i got in my battalion 600 blokes there was a 16 man sniper platoon so straight away I was like I want to be in that platoon because there's only 16 of them and it's hard so that's how I that was the first stepping stone of my military career was then doing this this course this nine week course to qualify as a sniper and getting in that sniper platoon so after that it was the next course and the next course and it was literally from as soon as I passed out of training where's my next like uncomfortable thing I can go to to test myself and get better so and, and I think when you get in those platoons, so that you get in those little units like sniper platoon, you meet more like-minded people. 
who want to be the same as you and do the like set a high standard and, and push themselves. You and as you go through your career, you find a lot of like-minded people. That's the essence of team sports at a high level, James. That you've just nailed there. It's it's, it's a collection of like-minded people aligned with how they see the world and pushing in in one direction. You know, push aggressively in one direction and and always you know pursuing being better. Well, I I'm I cannot believe you watched the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan and wanted to be on that fucking beach. You you've got to be weird. You've got to be weird. Maybe not exactly <laughs> on that beach, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, but for me, those blokes, like the guys who did that and the guys who fought in like World War Two, to me, they're like the, the, the like the the epitome of what it takes to be like brave and courageous. Because you're hitting, they were hitting that beach, pretty much knowing what was waiting for them, and they went anyway. And for me, that's like the epitome of courage is knowing what's waiting for you, but just getting a grip of yourself and, and doing it. And and when I watch things like that, it just gets me really like that. That, that that's just courage, you know, through and through. And and those blokes, for me, are like the the epitome of it is that quite rare these days do you know is that sort of mentality from your experience um still as prevalent as it was you know in the 1920s and 30s and 40s or or has society changed and therefore people changed as well i think it's definitely changed i think and i'm only 35 but i'll sound like a right old bastard but i think like uh things have got too easy now like and i'm not saying everyone needs to go live in woods and things but uh, everything's like at the click of a finger yeah. in your apps. Look at us doing this online when like, yeah, how easy, yeah, yeah, how easy yeah. it is. And I, I do think it's, it's changed a lot. Uh, and I think the military is one of like the, the last bastions of that kind of, of that kind of mentality and that like where it's, it's, it's unashamably like tough and brutal. And, and, you know, like it's unashamably like you've got to go there and, and, graft and work hard and put yourselves in horrible situations and i think it's one of the last the last like areas that that still exists would you bring back national service or a, or a form of it after being in the army for so long and, and seeing the the benefits it gives you as a person would you kind of would you approve of some some form of it to kind of better the next generation of young people i don't think so um but then i'm because i think if you join as a soldier, you don't want to then be put with conscripts. If you're joining yeah. to have a career out of it, the last thing you want to do is be with people who don't want to be there or, or, or are getting by by doing the minimum when you want to be with people who are pushing for a high standard. And and you don't want to go into battle with people next year who are like, you know, aren't really, have, 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 they've cut corners on training or, they've, or they don't really want like get it as much. Um, but I, th- I think there's other things you could look at, like other countries who do, like a, a different form where they could, they have a couple of years where they'll go and work for the, I don't know, like in a certain non-combat areas, like maybe work in medical or work in, I think there is things they could do, but definitely not in the military. No, I'm, I'm a, I will, I will, I personally would not want to be with like, yeah, you wouldn't feel safe. Conscripts. No, no, no. And then if no. you have a separate unit of just national service guys, it's, you, 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 yeah, I just, no, I'm not a, it's not really a big thing that I'd, I'd back. So there's a couple of big moments in your life, obviously, you know, this pursuit of getting into the armed forces and then achieve achieving that, right? And then once you're in there, you've got this dogged mindset to to improve and to, to get better. That all leads up to the point, look, what we're going to talk about today is, you know, what people are fascinated in about, about you. For me, for me, it's interesting, but I think your mindset prior to it shows and your mindset after is interesting more so. But talk to us how that, you know, what was the path from joining and where did you get to in your in your career before before the incident? Yeah, well, I'll give you like a rapid, like through it and you can just get in it and tear it apart. But so I passed out of training and I was a bit of a spotter. So I got top student when I was in training because uh, I just, I was always willing to do that a little bit more than everyone else. And, and I was always, when people going to bed, I'd stay up and do things and I'd never cut corners. And it's one of those things, weirdly in the army, when you turn up, at your unit and if you've got top student in training you get the piss taken out of you quite a bit because you're like we teach we teachers pet yeah but even though you're the opposite because the teachers don't yeah. really see or you don't realize at the time they see what you're doing because you're like 17 years old grafting staying up ironing when everyone else is asleep and you don't you're like you're doing it because you want to be good at it not because you think you're going to get a pat on the head 
And at the end, like, oh, we'll give you top student. And you're like, oh, right. Yeah, I was just doing it so I didn't get shouted at. But all right, yeah. Oh, I wanted to be the best. I, uh, yeah, so I passed out of training uh, on the 16th of July, 2004. And then two weeks later, I was in Bosnia because my guys were already there. And then I passed out of training and went to my, my unit who, and they said, like, there's two months left. You can either stay here and do rear party, like get the base ready for their return, or you can go. So I was like, well, I'll go. Send me straight out. I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, so I went straight out to Bosnia to meet my unit, which was tough because you, you're going straight into a unit who's deployed. Uh, and it's not like, it wasn't like Iraq or Afghanistan where it was like you were fighting, you were basically peacekeeping, but you were turning up to a unit who have been together for four months in a different country. So you've got to like ease into that. So but I'd have rather done it that way than let them come back and then, me have just been in the camp for two months because you've just been right at the bottom of the pile. Uh, and then from there, I uh, went to Belize to do jungle warfare training, which was like, that was two months in the jungle, which was absolutely ace. I love that. I'd go back to the jungle like any day. Um, and then from there, I joined the battalion sniper platoon, uh, which there were 16 of us. And even there, I, like, I went on the course, having been in the army less than a year, and I was with guys who'd been there like four or five years and I was on that course and every day I felt like I was going to get binned because I was so new to the course and everyone else was known. Like the instructors knew them or they knew of them and nobody knew me. And I, every day I was just quiet as a mouse. And then as soon as we finished on the night, I'd go revised by myself again, like a spotter. And then I ended up being one of only two to pass it and go into the platoon uh, out of like nine guys. And that, but every day I woke up and I was like, this is my last day now. I'm going to get binned. Do you know? I just know I am. Like, they're going to find me out. These guys have been doing this for four years. I'm going to be binned. Uh, and I didn't. I passed. And that gave me like a, a boost that I did actually know what I was doing and, and motivated me to keep looking for these challenges. And then, um, so we'll fast forward to like 2006. I went to Iraq for nine months and I went to Iraq part of a unit called the Brigade Surveillance Company. And it was made up of reconnaissance soldiers and snipers from like across the battalion. And our job was um, less about getting into firefights and contacts. And, and our job was to gather information. So we'd go out, out like 12 hours at night into areas where you wouldn't even send a hundred guys in during the day. And we'd creep about at night and we'd set up covert camera systems and we'd find enemy locations, and report all that information back to, uh, to people at the top who made decisions and then people would go like strike, like special forces would go strike their locations. Uh, so I did that and um, I did nine months there and this is where it kind of ramped up a bit. So while I was in Iraq, my unit were getting ready to redeploy to Afghanistan, but they were uh, 30 blocks down because they were in Iraq at the time. So they approached some of us and said, um, right, you'll come back from Iraq in July. We need blocks to deploy to Afghanistan in September. And you're supposed to wait like 18 months before you redeploy because you come back and you chill out and you train and you get ready. And I straight away was like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll go back to another war zone. So I came back from Iraq in July, had a whole month off and August, September got ready and then redeployed to Afghanistan for another seven months. So, and, and Afghanistan was brutal. And in less than two years, I've done like nearly 17 months of combat, like in two different theaters of operations. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize I came back after that second tour of Afghanistan where I was just like, fucking hell, I'm tired. Like, do you know, just like, I was like, I'm shattered. I need, I need a good rest. Uh, but I wanted, I wanted to change it at all because like Afghanistan was ace. It was, it was like brutal and it was like, it was tough and really tough. And we, and we went through some really tough times, but you found a lot about yourself out there. Uh, and like, I absolutely loved it. We were driving around the desert like Mad Max. It was ace. So like, it was just before the Taliban started using IEDs. So it was very like in your face fighting. So we were driving around in Land Rovers where we had like no roofs, no doors. We smashed the headlights out because they'd give our position away at night. And we were just cruising around the desert and we'd have like a target and we'd go to that target, come out in the morning, get into a scrap with the Taliban, put UAVs up to mark all their locations, drive out and then bomb all their locations and then drive around and do it the next day from somewhere else. And it was just absolutely ace. We were totally unsupported, totally by ourselves. Everyone was growing beards and everything. It was like proper like, like World War II desert warfare kind of like stuff. Um, every night just sleeping on desert floor, looking up at the stars and, you know, and it was, it was amazing. Like I wouldn't have changed it for anything. And, and it was just like, when I think back it now, I'm like, I can picture myself just lying there on the floor, not even in a tent, just looking up at the stars and just 
like and Afghanistan is beautiful. It's like miles of desert with huge like Hindu Kush mountains going on forever with snow on the top and you never see anything like it. And and that that like deployment is like some of the greatest times of my life just looking at like just being there and, and taking it all in. And you'd, you'd meet like Bedouin tribes in the desert who didn't even care there was a war on. They were just walking through the desert with their camels, going about their business. And you'd sit there and have tea with them and they'd ask you questions about about everything. Uh, yeah. And then obviously from there, came back a uh, year and a half later, went on my second tour of Afghanistan, uh, which is where I got injured. So second tour of Afghanistan was very different because I was in like a, a fixed location. So we'd go patrol out from our location, which means it was easy for them to plant bombs and IEDs because the new where you were going, uh, which I wasn't, I didn't do on, my, on the first talks. We had free reign to go where we wanted. And the, the Taliban had shifted massively because we'd bombed them and fought them evenly. They weren't winning. So then they shifted to planting bombs. They knew they weren't going to win, but if they they could take enough of us out and try and break our resolve through planting bombs, that was like their, their new tactic. So when I went out there the second time, it was just like, we barely got in any scraps. It was all just, bombs everywhere doorways ditches uh like fields they just they hid them everywhere and you knew if one went off somewhere there'd be another one because they expected it to go off and then you converge on that location to save the casualty so they'd hide more to try and catch out the the reinforcements and stuff so that's a really so, yeah. brief nutshell of like me joining to getting injured yeah and i think that shows look like i wanted you to tell that story because it's a story of challenge and you challenged yourself then and and pushed yourself and and achieved some bits before the the incident, and you know I think you know I've heard you speak about the injury a lot, but not heard about the the journey up to that point. So take us to right. You're in Helmand Province. Uh, what's the year, James? Uh, when I got injured. Yeah. Uh, two thousand and nine, November two thousand and nine. So November two thousand and nine. Uh, you're in Helmand Province, and obviously you've you've talked us through the the IEDs and the the impact they were having on the warfare at that time uh well just talk us through what happened in in, in as much detail as you can you know because i think these these are the most testing moments of people's lives are they like i said they, they do things to try and maneuver you onto id so we'd been at this village in this ditch and we'd gone there with like uh and the, the, a lot of people don't realize the locals want you there because they that you're protecting them from like the Taliban regime and the kind of horrible things they used to do to people, like not letting women go to school and like killing guys who didn't have beards. And, you know, they were, they were absolutely horrific people. And um, so this, this village had moved itself out. So where the river Helmand is, about a mile either side of it is just absolutely dense jungle level of foliage, um, which is called the green zone because it's, it's just so, um, they grow all the crops and they grow the heroin and things in there. And yes, seeing absolutely miles of fields of heroin as well. That's insane. Like the poppies, yeah. just seeing miles and miles of that. And you're like, should we burn this or something? And you're like, can't, because it's their livelihood. And you're like, all right, cool. Yeah. So we'll just let them grow all this heroin. Um, and then, um, so this village moved itself out of the green zone into the desert for our protection because at night the Taliban would come in, threaten them, steal heroin for, to, to fund their like um, weapons and stuff. So they moved out to there. So we'd go visit them and we'd go and set up a clinic. So we'd take our medics, doctors and everything to, to, to like bond with the locals and, and they loved it. So we'd sit around and have tea with them and, and, and chat through the interpreters. And, and we were walking back and we were walking back through the desert and there was a really old like fort, which has been around since, I don't know, like the, when we had soldiers there in the 1800s, this fort is just like nobody uses it anymore. So we started getting engaged from there by heavy machine guns but we were too far away for it actually to do any damage. So straight away, you're like, they're trying to force us somewhere. They're not trying to hit us. They're trying to make us jump for cover or make us get in a ditch, knowing that there's probably stuff planted in there. So we just kind of kept walking while you can hear the cracks and stuff whizzing over you, but you're pretty sure you're not going to get hit. Uh, and then we just left, we just walked, basically just walked away from shooting. It's like the ultimate thing to do to a bully. We were like, yeah, you can shoot us if you want, but you're not going to hit us. And, We'd got a bit further out to stop firing at us and we got to this ditch. So we knew there might be something in there somewhere. So we sent the metal detectors in, didn't find anything. And then we went through it one by one. And I was just the seventh guy who went through like total unlucky roll of the dice. I was the guy who stepped on the device that had obviously been buried in there. Uh, luckily, nobody else around me because we did it one at a time, got injured. I was just stepped on it and got like blown a bit off to the left and 
when you see explosions in films, they're like big fireballs, but they're not. It's just dust, just a massive thud and dust. And um, and I remember just kind of like opening my eyes and um, and I knew I'd been hit. And I was like, I was like, like, uh, what, what, what's going on? What's going on? And I remember like shouting, I'm over here. And I was on my front and I can remember the sand and, the, and stuff on my face. And then one of my mates got to me and rolled me over and I knew straight away I'd been hit. And I was like, I knew it was bad, but you don't know how bad until until you check. And at this point, we'd been there two months and I'd worked on uh, other soldiers who'd been hurt. Some of them didn't make it. I'd worked on a few civilians who'd been injured, who, who we'd tried to save. And we'd, we'd, so if civilians get hurt, we do what we can to save them. We send them back on our helicopters as well. Like we, we're not just going to leave them. We try and save them as much as we'd save our own. So we'd, we'd, I'd done that. So I knew when I got hit, how bad it, I didn't exactly know how bad it was, but I knew it was bad. And it's when I got rolled over, really. Like I've said to you before, John, I was like, and I was like, and I, I braced myself and I started at my right arm because I knew that wasn't that bad. And that's when I like looked and I saw all the muscle gone and all, I could see my tendons and, and blood. And I looked down and I saw my, my right leg was gone, but my tib or fib was still there and that was bent towards me. So my knee was bent the wrong way. And then I went over to like the left and that was totally gone. And there was like shrapnel wounds in my left leg and they were like overflowing with blood. And it was just like coming out into the sand. Uh, and then I went over to my left hand and you wear like Kevlar gloves and my little finger, my ring finger, my left hand was just hanging like in my glove. And I was like, and I remember saying to myself, like, like shit, I've been hit. Yep. Yep. Okay. And I was just trying so hard to stay calm. I was like, yeah, I've been hit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No worries. All right, cool. And I was just talking to myself and then heads started popping up all around me like meerkats, like my, my mates and my muckers who were just popping up to instantly start working on me and start plugging the holes and, and talking to me, keeping me awake, getting me ready to move, keeping me alive. And instantly it went from like within 10 seconds, people were on me, you know, working to keep me alive. Uh, and that 23 minutes after getting injured, uh, the helicopter came and as the helicopter was coming, you have to, getting Mel detects out and clear a landing site, they found an ID where the helicopter would land. So they'd planned it. So when I got injured or someone got injured, we'd call a helicopter. There was another ID planted there in the middle. So we had to shift the HLS to another location. So they had to carry me further on the stretcher because they'd planted more waiting for where they thought the helicopter might land. So they're always like going one step yeah. further than, than you think. Uh, yeah, so when the helicopter landed, uh, I was put on there. And then I don't remember anything for like, I woke up in intensive care in England two weeks later. Uh, but that like 23 minute period, I didn't remember much of until I spoke to the guys who were there who told me stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember. And some of the stuff you go through and the jokes, like you, you, you like, you like still joke around with the lads and, and you say stuff. And I remember uh, like as I was getting carried, I had my, my, both my arms bandaged up and I was like holding my t-shirt and I had my head down. I remember saying to myself, like, help them help you help them help you. So I was like getting on a really tight ball. So when they were carrying me to the helicopter and the, the, the dust was pushing away and, and the, from the rotor blades of the Chinook, I was like easy for them to carry. I wasn't like spinning around everywhere. And, uh, and I was saying to myself, like, if you pass out, you'll wake up in Birmingham because it's where the military hospital is. Like I didn't ever once think to myself, like, if you pass out, you're going to die here, mate. If you pass out, you're just going to die. So I was like, if you pass out, you'll wake up in Birmingham. If you pass out, you'll wake up in Birmingham. Don't worry, you'll wake up in Birmingham which is what essentially happened. I did wake up in Birmingham. Uh, but that 20-minute period, like I could talk to you about four hours, just about that, like about how Scotty the medic yeah. came running over. And I made friends with him early because he was on my first tour of Afghanistan uh, in a different location. But so this, like, well, I won't get into it, but we got suicide bombed on my first tour of Afghanistan. The guy drove his car into our convoy and blew himself up. And like, it was a massive explosion, like two cars in front of me. Um, and it was just mental. The whole thing was insane. And we drove into a British base afterwards, like dragging the vehicle that had been hit. And he was one of the medics in that base. So when I was on my second tour, I was saying to him, like, where were you last time? And he told me. And I was like, oh, I was there. Do you remember this suicide bombing happening? He was like, oh, I remember that. And then, so we had like a bit of a connection. And like one of the jokes is always make friends with the medic. Because when it something goes wrong, you're like, yeah, yeah, it's me. Come yeah. On, come remember me? Out. Yeah, yeah, come sort me out. <laughs> do your best. Do your best work here now, please. <laughs> come on, mate, we're pals, we're pals. Remember, remember that? <laughs> uh, yeah, and he, his lad called Scotty, and he and he got to me, and I remember like when he got to me, because like, it was him, I was, a, I was a bit more like, 
yeah, okay, Scotty's here now, Scotty. And we had a bit of a chat as well. Like I won't tell you what we said, but yeah, we had a good, like a good chat and a, a bit of a joke. Uh, yeah, and, and to be honest, even though it was an absolutely horrific moment, the stuff you do and say to each other, that, that like British soldier dark humour is like more prominent right then than any other time. Because when it's gone so bad and so wrong and so dark, that's when people start being being the funniest and joking around yeah. and, and stuff like that. And and uh, you find and I remember it now and some of those moments where I, I laugh at stuff now and I remember the rest of my life where people did things like like I don't like one guy got his like yeah, go on, you can tell. This is fine. No, no, it's absolutely fine. No, it's absolutely fine. One guy pulled his flies down and got his bits out and was like, going, have you seen this? And I'm like, just started laughing because at the moment I was like, I was like, it's so surreal. It was just like, have you seen this? And, and just looking at me when he did it. And that moment I was like, it was just one of those moments where it like brought me, like, I was like, I was like laughing and going, what are you doing? And but that's that, that yeah. British soldier kind of dark humor that you don't get many other places. But I needed that at the time. I needed like those moments of like. That's mateship as well, isn't it? That's what you find in a rugby dressing room. That's what you find, you know, I think that group lads humour that probably you need at a time like that to bring you through. I, I'm really interested to, to know, obviously you talk quite calmly about like losing limbs and the distress it must have caused you at the time. But leading up to that, going through all these war zones and, and being at risk all the time, how was your mindset there? Were you, was it always in the back of your mind that something like that was would happen? And it, and because it was maybe at the back of your mind, you were a little bit more prepared than, than you might have been otherwise. I always thought I might die, but I never thought I'd get injured. And a lot of the guys are the same. You think something, you might get killed, but you never think you're going to be the one who gets injured, especially as, as badly as I did. Excuse me. Um, um, and to the point where some of the lads even say to each other, like, if I lose my legs, don't let me live. Just let me go. Just, just let me go. I don't want to live, live like that. And I, like, okay. I never was one of those guys that never really crossed my mind. But I know guys who have lost legs who were those guys who say, like, I'm so glad I didn't go. They're like, my life has been so good after losing legs or arms that I can't even believe I said that at the time. So I know blokes who've lost legs who genuinely said, just let me go if, if I get injured. And they've gone on to achieve so much since that they can't even believe they're the same person who said that. Well, in Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dane is, is like that, isn't he? He kind of famously says, don't save me, don't save me. And then he becomes a, a shareholder in Forrest Gump. Um, is it just Forrest an actor, company. It's just Yeah, I know, but it's a story. It's a story. Yeah. He's <laughs> a, a good actor. Old Gary Sinus. Yeah, you know, James, obviously you survived, right? So you survived and, and, and you, you've you got mates, you know people who 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 haven't. And, you know, a lot of it is down to luck. But the medical team do an amazing job. But does that ever cross your mind, you know, that you've survived where other people haven't? Yeah, yeah oh, yeah, quite a bit. But not in like a negative way, more in like a just embrace my my chance to do it. So I know guys who, who, who didn't make it home. And, and I just think it would be, I'm massively disrespectful for them and their families if I, if I didn't embrace like the life I've been given, the chance I've been given. Um, and I, I think about those guys quite a lot, especially like I was at Cenotaph on Friday and I thought about it a lot. Um, yeah, but I, I just think I've been given the chance to keep going when those guys haven't. So I have to, I have to like embrace it. And, and when I do think about the guys that I know who died, I, I never think about them dying. I think about funny stories or things they've done that make me laugh. Uh, about them when they're alive, I don't dwell on the fact that they're not here anymore. Just on about the stuff we did when they were when they were here. Yeah, what, so talk us through. You know, I think you briefly mentioned your injuries. Look, if people haven't heard what your injuries are, you know, I think they'd be mad because you, it's a quote. You, you, you get about a bit, <laughs> you know. So yeah, so yeah. No, just just tell us, talk us through the the injuries, but then more so practically what a pain in the fucking ass those injuries are rather than just what they are. And like, how does it fucking affect you, you know? Yeah, so, oh, I don't even know where to start. Like, I'll start with the simple stuff. So I'm missing like a big chunk of muscle uh, on my right forearm and my lat on my right-hand side. So straight away there, my, my body, like my right shoulder has to overcompensate because my, my back can't do the work. But then my right forearm's like, well, I can't do that. I'm too tired. So then my whole right-hand side just gets smashed. Uh, my left arm, I'm missing 
the ring finger and the little finger and my wrist is fused. So I can't bend my wrist. So most stuff I have to do, I do one handed. I can still use my Xbox controller. So that's fine. Uh, then uh, like the big ones are like my right leg is gone above the knee. My left leg has gone above the knee. And then there's a few other bits, like a bit of shrapnel I took to, the, to my like uh, abdomen. So I've got a few scars and stuff there and a little bit of uh, just like a bit of like sometimes a bit of trouble with the muscle there, depending on like how the scar tissue is. Uh, yeah. So they're basically like the injuries and, and um, so the arm stuff, you just, you just crack on because it's like you bump some bruises and things and things you can get through. Uh, but like leg wise, uh, yeah, I've got my prosthetic. So I pretty much live on my prosthetic legs and I use my chair at home as like a pair of slippers. So when I'm at home, a bit taking dogs for a walk, gone out, been to the gym. If I've got nothing on for a few hours, I might just pop my legs off and jump in my chair and I don't really use it outside the house. Um, it's something I will do later on in life, but at the moment being mid thirties, being fit, healthy, I tend to use my prosthetics a lot more. I can get around a bit easier than I can in my chair because you can get places maybe you can't get in your wheelchair. Uh, the only chair I use all the time is my rugby chair, obviously, when I'm when I'm playing or training. So, yeah, one of my, like, I think I mentioned it before, is, like, one of my, my rules is, like, get my legs on by 10 a.m., no matter what, because it's one of those things, if I put stuff off, if I, like, I'll put them on at 11, put them on at 12, I'll do nothing that day, and I won't put my legs on. So... If I get my legs on, I can do anything. So, like, my partner's a nurse. She gets up for work at six. If I get up, put my legs on at seven, I will have the dogs walked, been to the gym, been to the shops and everything by, like, ten. Because as soon as my legs are on, I feel like I can do – I can absolutely go out there and smash it. Uh, and that's, like, my first hurdle of the day. And nine times out of ten, that's fine. I just put them on and I'm off. But some days, if I played the day before or done something, I'm get, I get a bit like a – like, oh, just, you know, this is a bit slower – but once I've got them on, I'm like, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm fine. And is it an arduous process that putting your legs on, as you so eloquently put it? No, it used to be. Yeah, I used to faff around doing it all the time. But now, because I'm so used to it, it takes me like two minutes just on. Yeah. And then it, it's it's like standing up for the first time. If you've played the day before and someone's been smashing into you in a metal chair for like 80 minutes and you've got bruises all over your back and things and you get up and you stand up, you're proper like old man back, like oh, standing up and stretching out. But... Yeah, yeah. I'm like that. But that, that's yeah, all, all the time. It's symbolic though, James. Putting your legs on. I think it's such an amazing. You know, you say it so, like Mark said so candidly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just want to make sure I have got my legs on by ten. But it, it, I know, I know. It's it's a funny thing, a funny turn of phrase, and it sounds so weird to everybody else. But it's the symbolic nature of doing that thing every day. And is that come from your military training? Yeah, it will have done like routine and everything. But like, it's just that self-discipline to, 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 to like, but if, if I'm, yeah, it's that self-discipline to be like, to do it and not let your standard slip and your standard slide. And there is occasional days I'll let myself not do it. If I've like, cause I also know myself really well where I'm like today, I just need to have a day off. I need to just chill out. Yeah. And that'll be like a no pressure day where I won't, for, I won't pressure myself. But if it's a day where I've got jobs to do and things that need to be done, it's that discipline of being like, ah, right, I'll get my legs on and go. And, and it has, but it's 12 years since I got injured. Like I've, I've, I was only in the army nine. So I've been injured longer than I was in the army. So like, this is yeah. it's just, I've, it, I've built up such a routine and been so disciplined with it. That now, now I don't even think about it. Do you get bored talking about it? Do, does it interest you talking about it? Or, are you on, or do you go on autopilot? Sometimes I do go on autopilot about it. If it's people who uh, ask me in the, Ask not asking me for the wrong reasons, but they're just. Uh, I have this conversation with my, with my partner quite a lot because she's an ICU nurse, so she sees a lot of horrific things, and we tend to and we, we say this to each other. Like I did, like over two years deployed in battlefields, and I rarely speak about stuff. Not because I don't want to, because I, I might be telling you a story about something really funny that happened in a firefight where things were really bad, and people who don't know tend to focus on the firefight. And I'm like, no, I'm not telling you about that. I'm telling you about this funny thing that happened in it. But people who don't get the context focus on the wrong thing. So my partner's an ICU nurse and she'll tell me stuff and I'll tell her stuff. But we both tend to not tell other people stuff because they won't fully get what you're trying to tell them. Like, I, like me telling you about getting injured and one of the guys getting his junk out. That's like, I'm not telling you about me getting injured. I'm telling you about a funny incident that happened at the time, but people tend to focus on the other thing so I tend just not to tell people stuff either because like I would 
if when I, if you get me one of the lads I used to like serve with, we'll, we'll be at it for hours, hours just chatting and texting and talking. But other people won't get the context of it. So I kind of not going to autopilot, but I just I shy away from a lot of the stuff because I don't want to like I just won't get it as much. Yeah. So, but you you you're, you're I'd say your celebrity. What you've got, you know. At the minute, you know, off the back of your injuries and, and and off the back of your speaking and your story, is linked to that incident, isn't it? And do, does you know, is there a point where you want to move away from it? Is what I'm saying. It, it, I'm, I'll bring you in here, flash. I'll bring you in here, flash, because yeah. you know, sports people often get attached to a certain part of the career or a certain moment, and then people always want to talk to you about that moment. That's that's difficult to to get away from sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and especially, you know, when James is saying then that, you know, when the context is lost on people. What I think is because they find most interesting or the, the furthest thing from their life is playing professional sport or it's being in a, in a battlefield and people lose limbs or whatever. So that's that's so foreign to them. That's why they want to know more about it. And that's why if I get asked about sport, I kind of have to think, well, it's so different for them. That's why they're interested in it rather than, a random story from the changing rooms where you got your knackers out, John. So I think that, that's that's where it comes from. But um, from from my own personal, um, you know, storytelling from sport and and, and being asked questions, I, I, yeah, I get a bit. Yeah, you have to, you go on autopilot sometimes because you know it's it, people sometimes just assume you just what this one thing, whether it's someone who's serving the army or rugby playing, you don't have other facets to your life. And that can be a bit frustrating. They think the only thing you've got good to talk about is running around with a rugby ball and tackling people once a week for 80 minutes. And that does become frustrating, yeah. And I know I know you probably yeah. feel the same sometimes, John. Yeah, no, no, I, I get it. I, I just, when, when when I saw James's name come up that we were going to have him on the podcast today, like a little bit of me thought, I just tried to get inside your head about it and think, right, look, if I was this guy, right, and you've got an infinite amount to offer the world, and people just kept fucking asking you about being blown up, and I'd be like, it just—I mean, look, I know, I know you've got the humility to not show it, but what I'm trying to say is, if I was you, I, I think the the really tight connection between you and your story, for me, I'd find that a challenge, you know, a real challenge. I did. Um, I spent a long time. It wasn't until 2018, so I started playing in 2013. I refused all media and promotion and everything for five years of playing because I didn't want to be like, I, I know a lot of guys and we, we, we like nick them professional veterans and it's like a derogatory kind of term where they've left the military, not really done anything and just dined out on the fact they were in the military for years and they've used that to like open doors for themselves and not really do anything else. So I, for years, I shied away from everything until after the 2017 World Cup because I wanted to build what I had as a player. So then I didn't, so I'd achieved enough as a player, won the grand final, um, went to a World Cup final. So then when I did get asked about being in the military and things, I also had all my achievements as a rugby player as well to that point. So it was only in 2018 when, really when John Dutton asked me to be the World Cup ambassador, where I was like, I've achieved enough now to be happy to talk about my time in the military, like publicly. Because I'm not just talk, I'm not just in the rugby league world talking about what I'd achieved before. I've now got enough behind me to talk about both. I, sp- I suppose with that as well, I think you want you probably want to, out of pride. You want to be known as a great rugby player in, in the wheelchair version, exclusive as of your history with in the army. You want just to be a really good rugby player. You don't want that to be the side story, do you? Yeah, exactly. I want, I want, like, I, I just said it's two different, like, volumes of my, like, my life. So I was a soldier up until, obviously, I left, but I was a career soldier till like, the second I got injured. And then basically for me, that's where, like, my rugby career began, that, that second I got injured, really. So yeah, I, uh, I wanted to be, I want to be known for both. But having accomplished, this is a bit strange, but having accomplished enough through the game, it made me happier to talk about my time in the military because I know people don't just look at me as the token ex-soldier who they can wheel out. Like now, yeah. people, like, so I don't mind talking about anything. Can you, can you say wheel out? Can you say, can you say wheel out? Is that allowed? I can. 
You can, you can, yeah. You know, no, no, I can't. No, no. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, so that was a moment where I was like really happy. I'm, and I, I could sit here if you wanted. We could spend four hours talking about just, just being in Afghanistan, and I'd happily do it. As, like, yeah. as long as I felt like you guys were interested in it, I got quite good at realizing when people are losing their interest a bit, and I'll, I'll like stop because I don't want to. Basically, I don't want to be that guy who just talks about like the, the back in my day we did this, and that's one of the reasons I left the army. To be honest, um, I carried on for another two years working in and I went to run basically it's called a dismounted close combat trainer and it's a giant computer screen with rifles attached to it so you can simulate things I went to work there I was running that and my guys were getting ready to redeploy to Afghanistan and I went to my boss and was like I've got to go now because when they come back they'll be telling all their stories about their six-month deployment and I'll be like yeah yeah but do you remember three years ago when we went so that was yeah. my moment I went to my boss and I was like I'm happy to go now boss like I'm, I'm, I've, I've done my stuff. Uh, I don't want to turn into the guy that people don't want to talk in front of because he's going to go back to his, his experiences years ago. So yeah, that we, was I, the main yeah. reason I left. I said this to John on Sat um, last Friday. He was going down for the Challenge Cup, obviously, and I said we catch up with the rugby lads after the game if they win or lose, whatever. John still obviously got some great friends there, and you said, John, there's nothing more tragic than a, a guy living in the past and trying to hang on to his time as a professional rugby player, being part of the team when their time's gone. And I suppose that's kind of what you're alluding to there. I always felt like if somebody achieves something, celebrate it then in that time, but then don't dine out on that or don't try and attach yourself with the success of other people. And it's always difficult. Everything's got a time and it's got its moment, hasn't it? And I think there's nothing more tragic than that staying at a party too long. Do you know what I mean? Or, or trying, or even worse, is leaving a party and then trying to get back in after you've left. You know, do you remember if, me? If do you remember enough? me, guys? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to play with you, like <laughs> me. Pathetic. That's what they would have done. If I'd have been me trying to, I'd have slammed the change room door in my face as I was trying to get in. Yeah, but, I yeah, think that's, that's, yeah sorry, mate. That because um, I've achieved enough playing the game, I, I don't mind. I'm not doing it for the sole purpose of being like, look at me. I did all this. I'm doing it now for the game of rugby league, of wheelchair rugby league. So me talking about my past and the things I've been through, I do it now for not for personal gain. It's for the, the game and the sport and to, to raise awareness and to show people about what I've been through. And if people have been through similar things, you can, you can achieve a successful career in a sport as well. Like that, you know, you can go through horrific things and, and come out the other end and go on to represent your country in world cups and, and things like that. And, that's one of the main reasons I, I, I'm happy to talk about things now because of the stuff I've achieved in the game and to show people the the pathway to, to like to get involved in the sport. Well, talk us about your achievements in the game then. Um, I think me and Mark know what they are, but for people who, who are listening listening in, just how serious a competitor you are. So yeah, 2013 I started playing and it was just to get out of the house and to play, to meet other disabled people who I was disabled at 23. And I knew nothing about the world as like as a disabled human. So I wanted did you, why, why did why did you pause on human? Human being human. Yeah, I don't know what I was going with. And then it just <laughs> I was looking at a picture of a koala then. And, and then I, it, it, and then I was like, I'm, like <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a koala, I'm a human. <laughs> When, when I started playing, it was just for that. So I was with all these guys and girls, wheelchair Billy, who um, have grown up disabled, grown up in wheelchairs and things like that. So I learned a lot about the world and about what you could accomplish. Uh, and like when I started playing for Leeds, there were six teams in the country. We're on 22 now, by the way, 22 teams, and growing with the World Cup. Um, and we lost every game we played for three years as, as the Leeds club, but none of us quit. Like the same core group of players who are there now, four players who um, played for England uh, three weeks ago against Wales, all started in that Leeds team where we lost every single game. And for three years, we, we just took it, got battered, and slowly we started creeping up. And then I, mean, I remember when we got our first draw, that was like we'd won the grand final. Uh, and then it was just like, we, were, we've, we haven't lost. We didn't get <laughs> We one yeah. <laughs> it, honestly, it was, it was like the best thing ever. And and about 2016, things started changing. And then we made our first grand final in, 20, in 2016 and we lost. But 
the journey we'd gone on, all of us losing every game to then making the grand final. Uh, and then 2017, we made the grand final and lost. But 2018, we won our first grand final. And the video of us winning, like that was on our league, it, we, got, we got absolutely mental. Like there's people in wheelchairs jumping on other people in wheelchairs, people throwing tags in the air all over each other. And it's just a huge pile of bodies and wheelchairs. And like, because it, it, for us, it wasn't winning the grand final. It was like six or five, six years of just graft, of losing everything and then slowly clawing ourselves up. And, and the team we beat are the team who had won it like four years in a row. And, and it meant, and it was one of those moments where it was like, like, it's a bit cheesy, but like showing that like God can bleed by beating this team in the grand final, not being beaten for years. And that was a massive moment for us where everything suddenly shifted. And then the next year, 2019, we won every game we played. We won the Challenge Cup final. We, we made the grand final, but we lost. Uh, but like that year, the con- the difference in just a few years in the squad, the same squad as well, because we just gelled together and we all worked hard for each other. And this year, so we had 2020 off, obviously. This year, we've won all five of our games. Four of the squad were in the England team. One of the squad was in the Wales team. And a few years ago, we just none of us were in internationals. None of us were doing anything. And we've just come so far as a unit. James, how how on that right? So you've gone from being in a losing environment to that changing, and 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 you're winning. What what if you could ping that on one thing? What what was the thing that made that change for you? Yeah, I should have really mentioned before because he'll give me stick. The coach, we got a a new coach, Martin Gill, in 2014, I think, and he basically came to the club. He'd worked in the professional ranks. Uh, he'd done a like a, he'd been in rugby league, but he didn't know anything about wheelchair rugby league. But he knew how to coach, and he coached one of the players who plays wheelchair. He even coached him as a kid at running game before he came to wheelchair. Uh, and he basically came in and said, "I will have you in the grand final in three years. You will be in the grand final in three years." Uh, and we didn't win it while he was the coach because he only did his three years and he left. But his whole mindset and the way he did things, he brought from running game and instilled into us like the. the the ethos and the, the 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 commitment and the discipline he instilled into the whole team, and still now we we uh, we follow that like guidelines and that ethos and the players so close and so tight knit. It all comes from when Martin took over as the coach, uh, and when we won the grand final, he wasn't the coach at the time. Jim was who who took over him, but it all came off the foundations of what he put into the club. And when we get new players in now, we go through the same process with them, basically do the Martin Gill template. Great coaching can make such a difference, Flash, can't it? When when you when you get into an environment where you've got a great coach, things just happen quickly, don't they? Especially yeah, especially when they can change habits in a club. It sounds like um the coach they he kind of set a series of of standards um at the start that probably they're reaping the rewards for now. And I think yeah, I think if you start at the bottom and start at the foundations, like James said, that's that's when you you can maybe create a dinner stiff and have success for a long time. And um, yeah, we always say culture is a massive word in sport. And it's, it's, it's like you said, John, it's, it's a series of habits, common habits between like-minded individuals. And if you can have someone that can implement them, you've, you've got a great framework for success for a long time, I think. Who's your best coach, Mark? My best coach? Um, it's a good question. I think Nathan Brown was very good at, at Saints. He kind of, um, a lot of the, the success Saints have had um, these last couple of years has, has, has been on the back of the work he did with the young lads Percival Makinson um, Johnny Lomax all, all those guys they're hitting their, their best form now but I think Nathan Brown had a lot to do with that earlier in their careers how about yourself? Yeah, uh, yeah I'm not talking about me who is the worst <laughs> who's your worst coach? <laughs> Come on, don't be a shit house. Who's the worst coach you've had? Me again? Yeah. Fucking hell. I can't answer that. No, it's, you know I'm not like, like that, John. Pick, pick John like a James, childhood coach or something. You, you tell us, James, <laughs> who's your best and worst coach? Well, Gil, Gilly, Gilly's the first, isn't he? Number I was going to say probably Gilly on both. Really? Best? Yeah. <laughs> because he, he was a great coach, but the when we first came, and he'll say the same thing, uh, when he first came, I, I basically didn't speak to him uh, for like, because I didn't know him and I was getting used to him. I just kind of ignored him for like six months. I just did what he said, but we never chatted really other than coach player. 
So he slowly got, and that was because you got to remember, I was like a couple of years post injury there. Uh, so not that I didn't buy into it, but I was still finding my way in the world. So he, he put, when he made me captain of the squad, it was like, a ma- he gave me that challenge to test myself. And, to, and that was a big turning point for me in my career as a player. And like at the time I was like, I don't want to be the captain. I, want to, I just want to. And, and so I think Gilly's both because he was, he was a great coach, but he was tough and he had standards. And I remember the times he ripped into us and I was like, I'm just doing this for fun, but he'd rip into us and then he'd get a response as well. So yeah, I'm going to give him for both. Yeah. Good coaches know how to push players' buttons, don't they? Yeah. Oh yeah. And know how to like the team we've got now, he, he knew how to, he knew one player he could just rip into, but he also knew the other player would be like, yeah, that's really good, that mate. Do more of that. Yeah, understanding people. Yeah, he wants just going a million miles an hour. And the culture we've got at the club is like, all comes off the back of him. And none of the players in our club ever think about themselves. And honestly, that and that, like not going full circle or anything, but that, that's such a military mindset as well, that no one is above the team. And we, we have that at Leeds. And I see other wheelchair clubs who've been around a lot longer than us still can argue and can get at each other. And we're like looking and we're like, we don't do that. We're constantly like on each other and supporting each other. And if someone does something wrong, we're like, don't worry about it, mate. We'll, we've got your back. And and that all comes back from like his style of coaching. And that's so military. He didn't have a military background. He didn't try and make us like soldiers and anything. But the, it's, the, it's about the ethos and the standards that, that I loved about the way he did things. And that is, is definitely in all our players who are in the squad now. So it's rugby league World Cup year, James. Obviously, you, you know you've been um, out on the road talking about it, promoting it, you know, um, a lot. <laughs> I'd imagine. So look, it's an exciting time for for wheelchair rugby league, isn't it? Because it's getting a lot, it's getting a lot of exposure, and, and it's been talked about by the organisers. You know, I think John Dutton and, and the guys from the top have never really mentioned the men's game in isolation. It's always been. It's probably, for me, been the most inclusive campaign before a tournament ever. Uh, yeah, I wish it had been out on the road a bit more. Like half the stuff I've done recently has just been on video or chat or something, but it's slowly yeah. starting to ramp up now. Like last week alone, like I said, with the Copper Box and uh, Downing Street and Wembley and everything. But I think Wheelchair Rugby League is, like, I think Rugby League is the most inclusive sport across the board. But I think Wheelchair Rugby League is like the cherry on top. Like, you've got male and female athletes like totally different ages across the board. As long as you can get in that, like, I think the minimum age is 16 to play international, but you, you could be like 50, 60. If you're good enough and you're fit enough, you can still play. Like if you, if you meet the standards and to be included in the world cup, like it's, uh, there's, there's not really many ways to say it. Then it's just, it's absolutely massive. And we never expect anything as players. Like we just, we're just happy to play the game and, and get out there. So, when we do get rewarded, really, with these massive opportunities to to play in these venues and, and to wheel out there in the same weekend as the men's and the women's teams and to, and to take to the same stage and the same stands as them, it's just absolutely massive, especially for the players who have played rugby league before who might have, like myself, got injured. So they're playing a different variation of the game. And it, it does come off John. Just I think John has always been a fan of the game, John Dutton, and he's just... He was the right person at the time in that position to be like, I can get the wheelchair game even bigger by putting it on national TV, by including it in the World Cup. And you only have to look at the, the game we had three weeks ago against Wales. We had a 200 capacity in Sheffield and we had 200 people in there. And we were on BBC iPlayer for the first time ever. We've never been on TV before. We were on BBC. So like this year has already started so high, building up to what, it's going to be the biggest World Cup ever. Like, obviously, the biggest for us, but the biggest for everyone involved or anyone watching. And it's, it's. I'm like just so, so excited about it uh, that I don't even know. Honestly, I get I get tongue tied trying to think of the words to say for it because I say massive and I say huge and I say awesome, but they're not big enough to say how good it's going to be to watch us all out there. Like, yeah. and, and I, as a fan, I'm buzzing to watch it. I, I follow obviously follow rugby league. I follow the women's game. I follow the wheelchair game and I watch it all and I can't wait to watch it all. I can't wait to be in camp with the wheelchair team, watching the women's games, watching the men's games all at the same time. And to be a fan, but in camp as an England player is going to be awesome as well. And I can't think of any other words to say that are going to just go into how big it's going to be. Awesome. 
It is going to be huge. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Huge. <laughs> it's going to be massive. Pretty big. <laughs> it's pretty big. It's pretty damn big for the wheelchair game. Flash, it's a big year for rugby league, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this earlier. I was, was saying it's, it's, it's the most inclusive probably World Cup of any sport. Um, and the fact that they're going to align all 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 three formats of the game, the men's, the women's, uh, the wheelchair game, um, I think that's a really strong signal that rugby league are putting out there that we are a pro- progressive sport, and you know we are really inclusive. And I I, I was um, again doing a bit of research, and I I was looking at some highlights from previous games, and I was really amazed at the uh, how similar they are as as to from the wheelchair game to to the men's sport and the the moves. The way the, the the team play with you know they, they'll attack one side to open up the other side, and it's very similar. And I, I'm, I was looking at fixtures, and I know the the finals in Liverpool, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and Friday I, the twenty sixth, MS Bank Arena. Yeah, yeah, the day before the the men's final, the women's final. So I'm I'm thinking I'm going to get over for that. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, great. So James, right? One thing I think a lot about as well is that you've given so much to rugby league, and it, you know you've you've been um, a hugely successful player. You've now become an ambassador for the World Cup, and and you're out there spreading sort of rugby league's gospel, the gospel. What has rugby league given you though in return? You know, you're giving a lot out of yourself. What have you got from rugby league? Apart from the 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 like the snippets, like going to Downing Street, no matter what people think about, like the people who run this country, going to Downing Street and meeting the Prime Minister is like, it's, it's something you'll remember forever. And like, and it's things like that, things like being at Wembley, things like meeting Prince Harry at Buckingham Palace, you know, these, these moments that I just, when I sit back and I think about each individual moment, how ace that is. But not just those moments, it's the, the purpose and the, 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 like the, everything I do, well, most things I do, even though I'm not a professional athlete, is I act like a professional athlete. Like, because I'm knocking on a bit as well, 35. Like, in, in sport, it's a bit older. I constantly train, eat, sleep, live for the game, really, at the moment, and, until the World Cup, because I wanted to be so successful in it. So it has given me a massive purpose to my life, and I care as much about this as I did about being a soldier. I threw myself into everything I did in the Army, constantly challenged myself, constantly wanting to be better, and I have the same outlook on, on wheelchair rugby league and the, the game has given me like just a massive purpose in, in, in my life. Like I'm not saying if I didn't have rugby league, I'd be miserable. I wouldn't be at all. I'd be doing something else. Yeah. But yeah. at the moment, it's, it's, it's given my life a, a massive purpose and meaning and things to work, work towards. Like in 10 years time, I'm, I'm like, I always think of, targets that might be unachievable but for me I'm like in 15 years time I want to be working for International Rugby League living in Wollongong managing the international calendar for wheelchair like it probably won't happen let's be honest but the things on the way yeah. hopefully there's opportunities there there wasn't a wheelchair ambassador four years ago like there is now so what's the next stage after the World Cup they're going to need people who know what they're doing and talking about who are passionate about the game to, to take on Things so I'm like if in 15 years if I'm aiming for that in 15 years time, what are we going to achieve in five, ten? Do you know for the game? So, so like for me the World Cup isn't the end. For me the World Cup's the start of like the next stage of getting wheelchair rugby league bigger and more global and, and taking it to even more places. Yeah, it's it's an exciting time for for all forms of the game, but for the wheelchair game it's huge. Look, we've taken a lot of your time, James, and I know you do a lot of these, but I just wanted to get your thoughts, Flash. What what what? What things? So much to digest there from James, like huge, big topics. But what what are the things you've taken away from what he's had to say today? Um, yeah, I love probably like most people listening to, listening to James is is the stories of you know the tough times he went through um, in Afghanistan and, and and the challenges there. And yeah, I, like I said, I've, I've done a bit of research leading up to this on on the wheelchair game, and I was already really excited about the World Cup and probably. James has increased that now. And um, yeah, it, that last question made me look back on what rugby league's given to me as well. And, you know, everyone who's played the game, whether whichever format it might be, it's, it's been it's been brilliant for, for making friendships, for making memories, for giving you values um, of winning, losing, resilience, hard work. You could list, you could go on all day listening, but in terms of, you know, sport to teach life lessons, I don't think you can look much further than rugby league. And, it's certainly had a massive impact on my life, as it is, as it has for James. 
Yeah, and I think one one of the big takeaways for me, James, when I speak with you is is this the sort of nostalgic link to courage. That I, I love, you know, that 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 concept of bravery and and, and that walking into shit, knowing it's going to be shit, and doing it anyway, is something that I, I think should be treasured. I think it. You know, your willingness to progress, to move on, to constantly challenge yourself. I think there's lessons there for everyone. And then to just remember things are funny, even if you've lost your legs in the fucking half of your hand. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can still, there's things that will always be funny. And I think a man getting his bits out of his fly in the right context, in the right context, yeah, yep. is always, <laughs> yeah. always funny. Yeah. But yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for joining us, James. That's been Anytime, awesome. mate, you know that. Yeah, cheers, James. Good luck for the World Cup, mate. Yeah, that's it from Out of Your League. Uh, You can download this episode from iTunes or any of the podcast providers. See you soon.